the story of the raising of Lazarus. Raise your hand if you know the story. Okay? Raise your hand if you know the book of the Bible that story is in. I'm going to give you a hint. I see maybe two. Okay. If you know it, why does that give you the hints? You can go ahead and call it out. It's in the New Testament. It's a gospel. It's the signs, the book of signs. It's got a high Christology. Starts with the letter J. Thank you, John. It's John. The Gospel of John has the story of the raising of Lazarus. It's the only one that has it. And actually, it's in John 11. And the raising of Lazarus story is long. It's really long. It's longer than you think. It's actually 45 verses. And the thing about this beautiful, long story of the raising of Lazarus is it's full of one-liners that people know. And it's full of these phrases that people talk about. And it's full of people that you know. And so that's what makes the story familiar, these one-liners, these phrases, and these people. And so I'm going to tell you a little bit about those things. Let me give you some examples. For instance, the very first verse of this story, it says, There was a man who was ill named Lazarus, and his sisters are Mary and Martha from the village of Bethany. We know Mary and Martha. We love Mary and Martha's story. Remember this story about how they argued about which is better? Cleaning the kitchen or sitting at the feet of Jesus? People all the time go, are you a Mary or are you a Martha? We know these people. We know the village of Bethany. And it's a lot of fun, too, that Lazarus is known through his sisters. That's just an aside. It's just a lot of fun, I think. Another person in the story that we know is Thomas. Thomas the twin is in this story. But in this story, he believes. He says, let's go and let's be with Lazarus. But we know another time he might be one who doubts. We know Thomas. This is also in the story, the part where it says, there are 12 hours of daylight. And those who walk in the light do not stumble, but those who walk at night, they stumble, for they don't walk in the light. They walk in darkness. We know about that. Also, we know that when Jesus hears about his friend Lazarus, he actually sits there for two days and he waits. And a lot of people go, why? Why did he wait? Easy answer is, the point is, we're in God's time, not ours. God's control, not ours. I love the fact that Jesus just has a friend. It's this really deep friendship that Jesus has with Lazarus. Is there anything else that you all remember about the beginnings of this story? Anything? Okay, I guess I covered it. This is a really interesting way to talk about a story. It's also a fun way. So I suggest if you ever want to read a story before you read it with a friend or a partner, even a child, talk about it first. Say what you remember. Say the parts you don't remember, even if they're wrong. And then you read it. And you see even more that comes. You pay attention a little differently. So that's just a fun way to read scripture. We're going to read the last six 
verses of this story together. We're going to read the part that has some bite. Here it is. On our screen. Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench because he's been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out. His hands and feet were bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. When I hear this, I immediately get chills. Because there are people in my life that I want to see come out of that tomb. But there are people in my life that can stay right there, too. <laughs> if you are interested in the Old Testament counterpart to this story, it's Ezekiel in the land of the Valley of the Dry Bones. And so, if you want to, go read Ezekiel 37, the Valley of the Dry Bones, and then read this story, John 11, all 45 verses, and those two counterpart each other. But this story here of Lazarus in the Gospel of John, this is the seventh sign story. And we know that seven means whole. It means complete. And so for John, this is the last sign story of its kind. And this sign story is important because it's the pivot. We are the place in the story. This whole story of Lazarus is a pivot it's the last story of Jesus' physical life before we make a narrative turn, a plot change, and head toward the journey of the cross. And that's exactly where we are this season of Lent. We are right in the story that happens right before the plot change. Because these are the last days of our physical thoughts before we begin to think about the journey to the cross. And so it's very easy to take these days of Lent. It's very easy to take these one-liners and phrase and people of Lent and of the story of Lazarus and just take them at, self, at surface value. But we know that they're a part of a larger story. And that's why this story's been on my mind this week. Because I've been hearing a lot of one-liners and a lot of phrases and a lot of headlines about a lot of people. There's a statement that came out from the Pope in the Catholic Church. There was a report of an attack on an Asian American business. And on a night where we thought 
we would wake up to the signs of a storm. Instead, we woke up to the alerts of an amber alert. And I've been paying attention to these three events. And I've been paying attention to the reactions of all these events and the social media world of what the response has been. And it's been saddening and disappointing because they've been talking about how church isn't relevant anymore, so let's just forget about it. And they've been talking about how, yeah, this thing happened, but that's not really my problem. And you know what? Let's just forget that. That does not concern me. And it's causing harm. And it's actually really sad and disappointing to hear about it. Because it is very tempting to put all these different one-liners and phrases and headlines in their place. Be like, eh, that's just about sexuality. That's not mine. Oh, that's just about racism or sexism. That's not something I need to worry about. That's not me. That's not how I feel. Oh, that's just about economic stability. That is not mine either. It's very tempting to put everything in its place and to compartmentalize it. It's very tempting to do that with the story of Lazarus. Say, you know what? That's just about friends with Jesus. That's just about some disciples. That's just about that family crisis. And really, that story has a lot bigger meaning than that. The story of Lazarus is actually a story about a culture crisis. One that starts with a conflict with a bunch of religious authorities. The Lazarus story has a much bigger context than we remember. Because it's a conflict in people who believe leading us to the journey on Easter morning. So it's very easy for us to keep things in their place, to compartmentalize. Work is work. Vacation is vacation. Play is play. Friends are friends, and never do you put them together. And everything has a time and a place. I used to think that the place where parents should dance is not in the kitchen. And my parents thought otherwise. My parents used to always dance in the kitchen. I would be like, that is not where you need to do that. This is my, my place. You should go find a fun little dance place and go do it there. I think that's wrong now. I think that anyone should dance with their partner in the kitchen. I think that would be a lot of fun and awesome. Another benign example. My husband he was buying lunch at this soup shop here in town. And he saw somebody from his church right there. And after she checked out, my husband said, Hey, Ellen. That's not a real name. I made it up. Ellen. And she looked at Nathan, and you could tell she had no idea who he was. And she's like, I'm Nathan, you know, your pastor at your church. And she went, Oh, my goodness, what are you doing here? said, you're supposed to be in Sandy Springs at the church in your robe. You're not supposed to be here in Roswell at shorts and a baseball cap buying lunch. You're in the wrong place. <laughs> we do that all the time. We put people in places, and we put issues in places. We put relationships here, and we put people there, and we put these problems there, and then we stick the real problems. We stick them way down and buried for things never to be discussed again. And the story of Lent is the same as Lazarus' story. 
The story of Lazarus is about decompartmentalizing our lives so that we can give it all over to our Lord. And the story of Lent, these days of Lent, this is our time to decompartmentalize our lives and know that we are the pivot story that should lead to a high Christology headed to the Easter cross. There's a great book. It's written by a man named Parker Palmer. And it's called A Hidden Wholeness, A Journey Toward an Undivided Life. And I want to read you a direct quote. It says, I pay a steep price when I live a divided life, feeling fraudulent, anxious about being found out, and depressed by the fact that I am denying my own selfhood. The people around me pay a price as well, for now they walk on ground made unstable by my dividedness. How can I affirm another's identity when I deny my own? How can I trust another's integrity when I deny my own? A fault line runs through the middle of my life, and whenever it cracks open, divorcing my words and my actions from the truth I hold within, things around me get shaky and begin to fall apart. How can we recognize a Messiah on Easter morning when we still haven't given everything to that Messiah? To say it another way, Lazarus has to get out of the tomb so Jesus can get in it. We have to take all of our stuff out so Jesus can infuse it all. So picture with me, Jesus standing outside the tomb and crying out, come out. Bring out your fear. Bring out your anxiety. Bring out your judgment. Bring out your hate. Bring out your worry. Bring out your illnesses. Bring out everything that stinks. Bring it all out. So that I can go in and be redeemed for you. And that I can help you be redeemed. And I can give all of these things new life and new mercy and new grace and new forgiveness and a new sense of love. Because the fault lines that we have created in our cultural crisis can no longer be ignored. And so when we do this together as a faith community, that's when we're going to stay relevant. And that's when we're going to be the real pivot story. And that's how we are going to know that we are celebrating Easter morning. And we're going to do this one act at a time, one person at a time one moment of death at a time to become new life. We're going to remove all that's not growing and all that's dead. 
and we're going to watch it grow. A great example of this is a missionary that I talked to. She's actually, when I talked to her, she's already in Africa. She's already in Sierra Leone, and I actually talked to her while she was in her um, apartment. She had a roommate there, and they don't live with much. It's very different than what we live with. She's a young woman. Um, she's much like Mary Stevens, who was here two weeks ago. Um, she just happens to already be in the mission field. She, too, is a tech grad. We've been hearing a lot from our missionaries. Mary Stevens and Rusty Gordon was here last week to tell us about our mission projects going down to the Gulf. Our missionaries are very different. And they're all working for the same cause. And it was interesting when I talked to Elizabeth because of something she said. She said, you know, I didn't want to just graduate tech and become another engineer in the field. And she said, but then I didn't want to just graduate and go be a missionary in the field either. She said, I wanted to do something that made all of me make sense. <laughs> it is pretty amazing. She said, I want to go do something that encompasses my whole life so that I can use my skills and I can use my engineering to do something that God needs me to do. And so I want to share with you what she's doing. It's a video. It's about four minutes. Um, and this is a project she's working on called Water 4. So watch the screens. Empowerment. It's what we do. It's who we are. What sets us apart. Empowerment. Because at Water 4, we know ending the global water crisis takes more than wells. It takes people. Empowered people. Who dedicate their lives to ending the senseless death that comes from this preventable crisis. It's not about us, not about our name, our brand. It's about raising up business leaders who can combat the crisis head on in their own country. Teach a man to fish? No, how about we teach a man to dig deep into the soil and pump safe water into a community for the very first time? How about we come alongside a local enterprise so they can maintain the pumps and keep the water running for years to come? How about we teach an entrepreneur to run their own business, supplying that water to neighbors around them? How about we change the face of a continent, one community, one district, one region at a time through sustainable, reliable solutions? Water 4 isn't some fly-by-night, feel-good activism group. We're not just another charity talking about the issue. We're in the trenches every day with our partners, ensuring this crisis will be eradicated in our lifetime. And to make sure that happens, we fight with fire. Because of our faith in Jesus Christ, we refuse to live in a broken world where those around us live in hopelessness and poverty. We see bringing water into a community as a spiritual act. We don't thump Bibles, we pump water. And in doing so, we earn the right to share the living water as well. We innovate, finding new ways to provide sustainable, cost-effective solutions for water access and share our findings with our partners in the field. From designing our own hand pumps 
to creating entire water systems built off cutting-edge technology, we continually work to make the impossible possible. We reimagine the status quo daily, never afraid to throw out old ideas in an effort to end the crisis once and for all. We don't see a disease-ridden village. We see a future with safe water at every home. We don't accept the lie that sustainability is unobtainable in our time, but look forward to the day when Water 4 is no longer needed. And we do all this in an effort to empower men and women to fight the water crisis in their own communities. We know it can't be solved by Westerners calling all the shots. The vision for an end to the global water crisis has to live inside the hearts and minds of those who have the power to do something about it those in the communities directly affected. You see, at Water 4, we're not the heroes of this story. Our heroes are the men and women working daily to save the lives of millions. We give them the tools they need to change the world around them. The vision to create a new, sustainable way of living. The hope to bring life to communities on the brink of existence. Whether it's the guarantee of a working hand pump, or safe water for every person in a district. Safe water changes everything. And that's why we won't stop until every person on Earth has access. At Water 4, we believe the water crisis has already been solved. Now it's time to end it, once and for all. So these next days, we are going to be called to unwrap and unbind the issues of that church statement and figure out what it really means. What does it really uncover about us? We're going to be called to unbind those issues of race-owned small businesses. And we are going to need to step into the light and really uncover issues of economic stability and water issues. So may we take these next days and may we step into the light and hear what God is asking us to put new life to. This, of course, is a time in our life of the church where we are in mission and service campaign. We are able to support our missionaries and our missionary projects like Water 4 and like Mary and like Homestretch and Drake House and Divine Providence Center. That's also another water project and a seminary. We are invited to be able to support these projects with our whole selves, with our prayers, with our presence, and also with our gifts. And you can support the missions and service budget by going to rumc.com serve. You can make a pledge, you can make a one-time gift, and you can make an annual gift. And you can also give to our operating budget of Chapel Roswell going online or texting. But if you choose to be a part of the mission and be a part of a comprehensive ministry to our world, I invite you to do so through that mission, through that service, website, and campaign. Amen. <laughs>